Welcome to Richard Ellis Talks with Richard Ellis. Thanks for allowing us to share this time with you. Honestly, it's our favorite time of the day where we get to hang out together and talk about how the truth of God's Word can make a huge difference in your life. And that's what we're going to hear from Richard in a way that only he can do with words of hope, insight, and humor. You may be stuck in traffic or stuck in life. Either way, today's message is going to help get you on the right track as you learn how much God loves you right where you are. So let's get right into today's talk. Here's Richard Ellis. The title of today's message is Super Bowl. And I'd like you to go to Genesis chapter 2. I'm not going to read through the whole creation story. But in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9, it simply says this, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's this tree of life. You know, if you start letting your mind race, you know, what do these trees look like? What's it? Just go with it. It's a tree. He makes this tree, and for some reason he calls this one the tree of life, or this kind of tree the tree of life, and there's this other one that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now go to, down to verse 16. So he's got a man, he's got a woman, he's given them instructions, and listen to what he says in verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now this is really important, and this is what I missed. He tells them, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now what did he tell them? You can eat of anything but that one tree. Now he cited in verse 9 two different kinds of trees, and as we'll see in a minute, something happened with that tree of life. But it is fascinating to me that they didn't bother to go eat of the tree of life even in the garden. They had to have this tree of knowledge of good and evil when the devil got done with them. Now look at Genesis chapter 3, 22. Now what's happened here is the serpent has beguiled or deceived Eve and she's eaten and given it to the man who's with her and he ate and now they realize they're naked, they're ashamed and you say, well the Bible says that the second you eat of it, you're going to die. Well, something did die, and eventually they would physically die, which wasn't going to happen unless they had sinned, but something changed, and in their relationship with God, something died. And after all this happens, then the Lord God said in verse 22 of Genesis 3, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. And by the way, I'm not going here, but these words are important in the scriptures. Why in the world would he use the word us? There's more than one of them when you got an us. This is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit talking amongst each other and saying, okay, Adam screwed it up. Of course, they knew he would. And they're not blaming Eve. They're blaming Adam. They've eaten of this fruit. Now the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way. And why did he do all this? The next phrase, to guard the way to the tree of life. He blocked the way to this tree of life. Now you would think, well, if they've screwed up, send them over to that tree and let them eat it, and then they live forever. But in God's providence and in the way this thing worked out, they didn't eat of that tree at all, and they could have, obviously, because it was in there. They're thrown out of the garden. 
So as the old song says, now we're trying to figure out a way to get what? Back to the garden. Now, if this was such a perfect place and it was, and the tree of life is in that garden and that's what you're after is life, you got to get back in the garden. Now, how do you get back in the garden? The whole rest of scripture is God showing us that we can't get to him without him and all of our goodness isn't going to get it, but then showing us a way to get to him through his son, Jesus, and we'll get to that in a little bit, and eat of this tree. It's amazing where a tree shows up. There's no way to read all this, but go to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. It talks about a tree here, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, if you do verse 2, what's going to happen to you? That person is going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You say, well, I want verse 3. Then you're going to have to get verse 2. You're going to have to delight in the law of the Lord and in his law meditate day and night, or that stuff is not going to happen to you. Now look at verse 4. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I encourage you to not just read your Bible, but to do what it says here, to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, and that will affect your life. And he says here, you'll be like a tree that's planted by a river of water. And a tree by a river, well, is the water splashing up on the tree? No, the roots of that tree go down into the ground and out into that river almost. The water supply that's coming by gives it nourishment, gives it moisture, and then it's able to produce the fruit that it needs to produce. Go to Jeremiah chapter 17. To your right a little bit should be. Jeremiah 17, and let's start with verse 5. Another place where this is, a tree is mentioned in this same context, and it's just powerful stuff to see the consequence and the contrast here between people who do walk with God and those who don't. Jeremiah 17, 5, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert. And shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in the salt land which is not inhabited. Look at verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Now, maybe somewhat parenthetically here, let me read you verse 9 again. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. If we went seat by seat, row by row, person by person, and say, did you experience that this week? A deceitful heart. You think you're doing the right thing, you're trying to do the right thing, and all of a sudden the devil comes along and tricks you again, and you just do some stupid sin, the same old one, or even a new one if you're getting sophisticated, and you realize how deceitful the heart is above all things. 
But the power in this statement is this as well. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Here's the contrast between a deceitful heart and a hard heart. If your heart is deceitful, it means you're deceived and you pray for wisdom. You say, God, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to do this, think this, feel this way anymore. You've got to change me. And a hard heart says, you know what? Forget you, God. I'll do what I want to do, live like I want to live, and you are no church, nobody, no Christian is going to tell me anything about my life. I'll live it like I want to live it. And the Bible says here that he searches the heart, tests the mind, and even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. You say, well, he's got to forgive me. You know what? But he's got to discipline you too to prove he's your father. And I would not run around with a warrant out for your arrest And when we are living in sin, blatant, hardened heart sin, we are running from God and the Holy Spirit is out there after us, a warrant's out, and he will catch you. He will catch me. It is better to turn yourself in before you get caught. Go to Galatians chapter 3, New Testament. Galatians 3 verse 10. Look at Paul writing this church. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You know what? You're cursed. I am cursed. You are cursed unless something removes the curse. You say, well, I don't want anybody cursing me. I have literally found out that standing here preaching in this building or wherever else, that there are people who show up And sometimes my wife says she's out there praying against this. There are people who are sitting out there. Their whole reason for showing up is to pray against what I'm preaching. And they're putting curses on me, trying to shut me down or push back. So we don't invite those people back. But look what he says here. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Have you done all of them? You're not cursed. If you haven't, you are but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by faith. Look at verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So if you don't have Jesus, you're cursed. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through him. Now, I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy, and this is why. He uses a phrase here. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, we're going to go look at this, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Go to Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, 22. Do you ever feel like you've got a curse on you? Now, I'm no authority in all this, but you think, you know what? Something bad is going on. It's just like somebody's after me. I'm in a funk. I'm trapped. No matter what I try to do or get ahead or get some peace or some joy, something in my life, it doesn't work. It's like I'm cursed. You are, unless you have been redeemed from the curse of the law by Christ himself. Now, look at Deuteronomy 21, 22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and there was capital punishment in the Old Testament, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. Now, whether this was a king or whoever, somebody was killed, and you hung him up on a tree, whether it's a noose or however you did it, if someone is hung on a tree, for some reason this technicality is important, 
His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is cursed of God. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. We'll go to that one in a minute, in Acts. Okay, no, just stick to 22 and 23 with me. Someone deserved to die. Jesus deserved to die. You say, well, he didn't deserve to die. But when all of his sins got dumped on us, he deserved to die. Everybody sinned before he had lived, while he was alive, after he would come to the earth, you, me, everybody. All of those sins got dumped on Jesus. All of a sudden, because he took our sin upon himself, he deserves to die. So what did they do? They hung him on a tree. But it is so squirrely here when you look at the New Testament, when they crucified him, they are desperate to get Jesus off the tree. They don't understand they've killed the God of the universe, but the religious people are like, we got to do what Deuteronomy, we got to stick to the law. We got to get him off the tree for our sakes, for the land's sake, because the scripture says, you don't want to defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. God cursed Jesus for your sake, for my sake. He was cursed so I wouldn't have to be cursed. Now go to Acts chapter 5, verse 30. Or if you, I'll just read this and we'll jump to another one. But this is the same type of thing. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And he keeps using this word tree over and over in these places. The cross is mentioned, but they specifically talk about this tree thing for some reason. Go to Acts chapter 13, 28. And this thing comes up in the sermons, the apostles, the disciples preaching and it comes up over and over, and you can read the whole thing here, but here's an excerpt from chapter 13, 28 and following. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. There's no reason to kill Jesus. Now, we know now the reason he deserved to die, ended up deserving to die, was because he took on our sins. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, and let's pick it up in verse 13. And this comes up over and over and over again, and you'll see in a minute by the time we get to the book of Revelation where it ties together. In this context, in 1 Peter 2, he's talking to people about whether you're a slave or an employee, whatever your situation on the planet, if you're a servant of any kind, here's how you're supposed to act. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And then he, in verse 22, quotes, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now he talks about him, Jesus, going all the way, who didn't deserve any of what he got, and he suffered. And I do not want to overlook this, but in this country where we live, 
in the context of what's gone on in the last 100, 200, however many years, I got to tell you, in the history of slavery, there is no way slaves in this country survived without Jesus. If you go back and look at black history and the attitude and the response, their reaction to being enslaved with no control, being born into slavery, dying in slavery, yet some of the greatest hymns we got on the planet come out of that suffering. But in the midst of all the nightmare and all the stuff that's going on in this country and that goes on around the world, when you mix Jesus with slavery, you got praise and worship and a total change of attitude because they got it. I may not be able to change my situation. And eventually you pray, you pray, you pray, and some change starts to come about. I think there is a lot of change. I don't think there's enough because it may be physically changed what you look at, but the hearts haven't changed yet. Now let me read you this again in the context of that and servants or slaves being submissive. Not only, look at verse 13, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? You got what you deserved. You know, nobody should be beaten. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable for God. God sits on his throne and says, now that's what I'm talking about. You are getting it. You're figuring it out in the midst of your suffering. For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Suffering is a part of this. And what Jesus went through, he went through to show you that what death brought and what Adam and Eve screwing everything up would bring death and aging and all these disasters to the planet. When you get to that place and I don't take you out, you are going to make it. Because I got the grace and the strength and the power to see you through that and to show somebody else how to do that, and that there is a hope beyond anything they could imagine. And when everything is great and you say, praise the Lord, people go, yeah, I'd praise the Lord too. But when you're dying and you're suffering and you say, praise the Lord anyway, they don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense. So you got problems. You complain. You know what? Nobody's going to believe anything about you. Oh, well, I'd complain too. But when you say, Father, I worship you, I thank you, I praise you. And Jesus did it. He showed me how to do it, left me the power to do it. I can do it. Look at verse 23. Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. You know what? There is joy even in the suffering. And I pray that for me and I pray that for you. Go to Revelation chapter 2 and we'll wrap this up with the last... We start in the beginning, we'll end in the end here. Revelation chapter 2, the last book in the Bible, Revelation 2, and let's start with verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, this is, these letters are getting written to different churches. These things say he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That sounds like a great church. But look what he says to him in verse 4. And nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You don't love me like you used to. You're doing all the right stuff. You don't love me like you used to. There's a difference in losing something and leaving something. If you lose something, you don't know where it is. If you left it, you go back and get it. 
Did you leave your first love somewhere? Go back where you left it and say, you know what? This is where we left off, God. I want to love you this way forever. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Then look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, what? I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And I don't understand all I know about this, guys, but a piece of heaven is going to be picking fruit. And you're going to get there, and what Adam and Eve had complete access to and chose the knowledge of the good and evil and got thrown out because of what Jesus did on the cross when he was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, you get access You trust God, you follow God, you obey God, you walk with God, and one day you get back in the garden, you get to that tree, and you eat of that fruit, you live forever. Go to Revelation 22, a few pages over. And this is John being shown all this stuff. Imagine John, who's seeing the things of the future. See, we have the ability to go back now with the Scriptures, go to Genesis and keep coming, and we've lived to this point. But John, 2,000 years ago, got to see the end And imagine if the end comes and there's military, there weren't any helicopters, it's a big bug. So if a Chinook helicopter is flying around, you go, I saw something like whatever. So when you read the book of Revelation, remember he's seeing stuff trying to describe something he's never seen. It's a dragon or something flying around. It didn't exist. But here he says, he gets to the last chapter, Revelation 22, verse 1 and following. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the street was the tree of life. Now, let me tell you something. It's not one tree. There's at least three. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits. So this tree doesn't only bear one kind of fruit. It bears 12 kind of fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Do you have the right to the tree of life? Before Richard comes back to wrap things up for us today, I'd like to share a couple important things with you. Let me encourage you to take a minute and check out our website, richardellistalks.com. You'll find today's talk right there in the talks page, along with all of Richard's messages. You can even forward them to a friend so they can hear them too. You'll also find the prayer wall to add your prayer requests, a link to connect with us, the contribute page for you to be able to give to this ministry, a radio station finder, all our social media links, and much more. So check it out, richardellistalks.com. And Richard's back now to wrap up today's talk. Now let me go back and give you a definition for a word. I said the title of the message was Super Bowl. When you spell bowl, B-O-L-E, the definition is a trunk of a tree and the Super Bowl of Super Bowls. And you know, every once in a while you hear people say, well, trees have feelings too. And I don't think they have feelings But it must be a bizarre thing to be Jesus, the God, the creator of the universe, and to have made everything that exists. And one day, at a place in time and history, 
a tree that had been planted or grew up someplace and got to the size to have a trunk, somebody came along and chopped that thing down and killed it in order for it to bear the God of the universe. That's the super tree. That's the Super Bowl. That tree, but the Super Bowl of Super Bowls, guys, is that day when Jesus himself, who knew no sin, became sin for us, took our curse and became cursed for us so that we might have access to this tree of life, to the city of God, to God himself. And that same gift that he made possible there, you may have it, you may not. If you don't, it's as simple as saying, God, I get it, I see it, I understand. I know what I've got, what I feel, what I've lived, what I have, don't have. The sin, the guilt, the shame. But I see now that Jesus took all that on himself. He can have it. And I'll take the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of my sins. I'm asking you to come live in me and through me and change me. And a couple thousand years ago, in a match between the God of the universe and Satan himself, there was the odds are, there are no odds. There's no way the devil wins that because it's God against him. And thank God he won. This has been Richard Ellis Talks with Richard Ellis. There's only one reason we do this program, to take the planet with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our message and our mission. And you have a vital part of doing that along with us. If you've been encouraged by these talks with Richard, be sure to share with someone about the change they've made in your life. And we'd love to hear your story as to how the talks have made a difference to you. Give us a call. We'd love to talk with you. 855-6-RICHARD. You can also reach us through our website, richardellistalks.com. And while you're there, check out all the fun and informative pages we put together for you, richardellistalks.com. While you're there, be sure to click on the Contribute tab at the top to send your generous gift. If the program is making a difference to you, your gift will make a big difference to us. Until next time, thanks so much for listening to Richard Ellis Talks.